So we've got to slow down the cycle of consumption, which means our devices have to last longer, which means they have to be repairable. The phone that you use for 18 months, like it's just literally not sustainable. Uh, and so we've, we've got to figure out solutions to those problems. Hey everybody, and welcome to What The Fix. This is our inaugural episode of the What The Fix podcast. This is a podcast focused on repair. Jack and I maintain the Fight to Repair Substack newsletter, uh, and I'm the founder of Secure Repairs, which is an organization of information technology and information security professionals that support right to repair. And uh, What the Fix is a podcast Jack and I both kind of talked about because we were following the right to repair issue and realized that, you know, the issue is kind of spreading out. You know, there's just so much going on um, on the periphery of right to repair. There are so many other issues wrapped up in it. And we thought, you know what, this is this is ripe for a podcast. This is a type of topic that really deserves its own show. Um, and so that's what this is. And so we're going to be coming to you every couple of weeks and we are going to be talking about the news of the week, the repair news of the week, uh, and also featuring interviews. We've done a bunch of interviews with really prominent uh, figures in the right to repair movement uh, or in related areas. And we're going to be bringing those to you. We're really looking forward to it. And uh, we hope that you sign up and subscribe. This is going to be coming to you in your podcast platform of choice. And if you're a secure, if you're a fight to repair newsletter subscriber, you'll be getting uh, information about it. We're also going to be introducing some uh, premium content around the podcast, access to special content and so on uh, that'll be attached to the uh, fight to repair uh, substack. So if you're not signed up for that, not subscribed to that, uh, please do so. And we'll have a link in the podcast for subscribing. Jack, how you doing? Feeling good. Ready to kick how us off. Yeah, absolutely. So the format we're doing, we're going to just start off by talking about some of the news of the week. And Jack and I have both been um, texting back and forth furiously and uh, going over the news from our Fight to Repair daily newsletter that Jack and I put out every week and picking out the stories that seem to us to be the most important of the week. And we're going to talk about them. We're going to break them out. Um, so Jack, I'm going to I'm going to toss the ball to you. Why don't you, you start? Um, what, what's your first story uh, of the week? So there's a piece written earlier this year that was about a company called Second Sight, which uh, gave people brain implants to allow them to see. And the company shut down and left people literally in the dark. They couldn't see and they had relied on these, you know, this equipment for years and years. And the company just like threw up its hands uh, at a certain point when they were shutting down. And so people are understandably very upset and it's calling into question what is the responsibility of a business that is impacting the quality of life of someone that heavily. This piece is essentially talking about the role of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in regulating medical devices. And so right now there is some compliance and liability associated with medical devices. Things like a approval for a medical device, you have to go through the FDA and, you know, there is some liability if you, you know, stop providing service or something goes wrong, like companies and business owners of those companies can be held accountable. But right now, uh, they're arguing that, you know, regulators aren't really doing much. It's really similar to 
issues that we see with much lower stakes, right? Like the famous one is recently was the, the Sonos speakers, right? Where they decided to sort of end of life uh, some of their uh, connected smart speakers, some of which people had maybe just bought recently within the last six months, same type of thing. End of life for this product line, we're not gonna be supporting it anymore. So it's, it's basically gonna get bricked um, because we're shutting down the servers that it relies on. And people were outraged and the company kind of backtracked. There was another one about one of these little like talking interactive robots, right? Where, <laughs> where? Gmo. Gmo. Were there all these videos, really sad videos of like Gmo dying as they like, you know, weaned it off the, the software updates and it could do some stuff without the without the real time connection to their servers, but not much. Um, and this is just a real issue, which is with software connected devices, right? When the company decides to walk away from maintaining the services that the connected device relies on, what happens, right? It really highlights this hardware versus software, what exactly do you own? Like, yeah, you own GMO, but GMO without the software and the services is basically just a paperweight, right? There isn't much motivation for the FDA, for example, to do anything because they're not feeling pressure. So I definitely agree with, you know, the authors of this piece that we need to pressure, you know, the government to actually do something because otherwise these companies are going to continue to, you know, they're okay shutting off these services. They're okay with not having people be able to repair these things that yeah in this case if i remember there was a lot about just the financial health of the company that made these and there were all these efforts to kind of get the company bought by another company and that fell through which is like listen this is this is the way business works right like not all these companies end up viable but when you're making a product that's implanted in somebody's body and you decide to stop supporting that product um you know it's not like you can it's not like it's a dishwasher that you can just say well they they make the mention of cochlear implants from the 1980s right like they're still they can right they can be upgraded right and they've been upgraded ever since right. and they were designed with that in mind right but now that's changed right right uh, which is a change in business culture not not a change in technology right um interesting okay so I was kind of torn on this because there's a lot going on this week. And in fact, I wanted to talk about, for example, and this, I'm going to kind of sneak in two stories here, really. I want to talk about <clears throat> the Google Pixel news with iFixit, right? That, you know, iFixit um, has announced a deal with Google, just like they announced a deal a couple of weeks ago with Samsung to provide replacement parts for Google Pixel phones that will allow owners to maintain and repair their own Google Pixel phones. They did a similar deal with Samsung again a couple of weeks ago. So iFixit, kind of the, the um, organization, the, the, the company that really has uh, promoted right to repair, um, not only here, but in the EU, is now actually really working with manufacturers to realize this, which is amazing, right? Because usually it's like you have enemy camps and you don't talk to each other. But in here, it's actually there, there have been bridges built to some of these large OEMs to sort of say, OK, you know, let, let's do this. That is huge, but actually I wanted to talk about, I think the even bigger story is one that, that actually came out, uh, and, and I'm, I'm bringing it up because there was a really interesting kind of analysis of it that we included in one of our recent repair roundups on, on Apple, two things. So first of all, the deals with Google and Samsung have shown the spotlight on Apple, 
because they announced, of course, to a lot of fanfare that they were going to be supporting users' ability to fix their own iPhones and selling replacement parts and so on and so forth uh, 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 back in and November. now they're getting dunked on. Now they're getting dunked on. So these other companies have come out with announcements that are actually a lot more filled in in terms of how this is going to work, um, particularly with the deal with iFixit, which, which Apple didn't do, at least not yet. And then also that has, because because of those Google and Samsung announcements, there's been this sort of like, hey, so what's going on with your program, Apple? You know, you announced it back in November. You said you'd have more information soon, but, it, you know, it's still radio silence from Apple on the specifics of their um, user repair program and how it's going to work. So there's that. And then there's this news that, that came out um, in Bloomberg last month that actually Apple... Um, while it is sort of, you know, saying, yeah, we're going to allow people to fix their own phones, maybe shifting as a company to a subscription model for their phones and iPads and so on, moving away from selling hardware to people to basically leasing hardware to people and um, and adopting an entirely different model for ownership, um, which won't be ownership. You'll you'll be a tenant. This has really big implications for right to repair, right? Because if you're if you don't own the phone hardware, um, arguably you don't have a right to repair it. You don't, you know, it's Apple's to repair. Just like when you lease an automobile, right? Like you don't bring it to an independent garage, you bring it back to the dealership that you leased it from, and they do the repair and service. That's part of the attraction for many people. You don't have to worry about the thing breaking down, right? Because it's all covered. Though the cost to you, right, leasing versus owning, if you were to like, you know, again thinking about a car. You know, if you amortize that out over 10 years, it's cheaper to own it, right? Because eventually you pay off the car, uh, whereas that lease is going to be just a, a monthly cost, you know, regardless of, of the age of the car. And I'm guessing the same will be true with the, with the iPhones and, and the iPads. Um, on the one hand, I think this is a much more honest way of doing business than what Apple's doing now, which is kind of selling you the phone, but then treating it like, actually they own the phone and you don't have any control over it. On the other hand, I do worry about consumers because if we're moving to a model where nobody buys hardware anymore, we all just lease our dishwasher and lease our phone and lease our laptop. That's actually a much more expensive world for people, right? Like back in the day when you used to like, you used to pay AT&T for your you know, for the phone hardware, right? You 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 kind of lease the phone from from Ma Bell. You know, Th those costs add up over time, and so that could be anti-consumer. But there's also part of me that's like, well, if companies like Apple move to this lease model, and other companies are going to be able to make money by saying, well, we'll sell you the phone, and you can actually own the phone, and that's going to be cheaper over the long run, right? Um, and and that becomes a, a competitive advantage for companies that are willing to actually let you own the thing. So it's it's a much more honest conversation in some way um, than the one we're having now. And so in general, I think it's a good thing, but I do worry. I'm curious to see if it sticks for one and two becomes the norm for other companies because Apple is a trendsetter in the space. Arguably, you kind of like already do. They're, they already are kind of leasing you your phone, right? Because I mean, if you think about how most people are obtaining their iPhone, right, or whatever, it's it's via like a Verizon or AT&T, you know, you're getting it for them and and paying for it over, you know, th three years or whatever it is, you know, you're paying however much a month, 20 or $30 a month. 
before that lease is up, they're already pushing new hardware on you. And so you just, you know, that lease rolls into another, you know, or that that contract rolls into another contract with a new piece of hardware, right? And so those payments kind of never go away. It's just that in theory, and for many people, eventually you actually do pay off the hardware. You have the option of not upgrading and just fully owning the hardware, and then those payments go away. But you can sort of see that for most people, you know, if you're one of those people who's out there, you bought the phone by the before your your con, you know, before you paid for it, you've already upgraded and rolled into a new contract. Those monthly payments never go away. For you, practically, that that lease agreement might not feel very different from what you're already doing, right? But for repair, it's a big issue because, of course, again, if you don't own it, you don't necessarily have a right to repair it. So, um, but I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that Apple actually fessing up and saying, yeah, okay, actually our business model is we don't really want you to own the hardware. We want to own the hardware. That's that's just a more honest conversation. And it, and it, and it makes the choices clearer for consumers than what's happening now. Same thing with John Deere. You know, John, maybe John Deere wants to go this route. You know what? Screw it. We'll just lease you your tractor. But if you're going to lease a tractor, you're not going to be able to charge people a million dollars for it or $500,000 for it. Do the prices right start to reflect the fact that I actually don't own this hardware. You know, you, you own the hardware. I'm just a tenant. I think this is a fantastic segue into our interview because Aaron Przanowski, who has authored a book called The Right to Repair, which is covering, you know, the history and, uh, you know, policy and legal aspects of right to repair. But he also wrote a book called The End of Ownership, which covers a lot of stuff around this, which is around ownership, subscription models, you know, the connection of like, you know, digital transformation to ownership, stuff like that. Yeah. End of Ownership really came out almost before, uh, I mean, a few years ago, kind of before this right to repair issue had really consolidated or, or you know, taken shape. And, and so this new book really kind of digs deep on the right to repair issue in particular. Aaron is a, a professor at, at Case Western University School of Law. So he's a he's a legal scholar. He's an expert on kind of intellectual property and, and um, um, contract and, and many of the issues that kind of pay, you know, play into right to repair. So we got Aaron on the line, had a great conversation with him, both about the book and about some of the larger issues surrounding right to repair. Um, and that's what we're going to bring you in our second segment. So without further ado, let's hear from Aaron. I'm a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And Aaron, welcome to What the Fix. Thank you. It's so good to be here. It seems evident to me, or it seems pretty clear that if you dig in even today in the United States, and I guess in Europe as well, there, there are a bunch of practices going on regarding repair and servicing that on the face of them would seem to be anti-competitive. You know, um, uh, OEMs refusing to sell replacement parts to people or, you know, uh, kind of, you know, refusal to deal type behaviors. But you don't often hear of any real kind of legal consequences for those companies. Why is that? Why are there these kind of you know, sketchy behaviors that seem pretty clearly to be violations of antitrust or anti-monopoly laws that people kind of shrug at? So I think 
part of this ties into you know the the history of antitrust enforcement in the United States over the last you know forty years or so, and there is a sense in which you know antitrust law has withered in that time period, and and you know antitrust enforcement agencies, whether that's the Department of Justice or that's the Federal Trade Commission have until recently, I, I think we should say, seem to have kind of lost their stomach for these fights. And, you know, the courts, I think, are a, a big part of explaining why. Um, you know, courts have become a lot quicker to find sort of business justifications for these kinds of policies that on their face do seem anti-competitive. But if the company can come in and say, well, actually, you know, this helps us offer products at a lower price point, And isn't that ultimately good for consumers, right? Uh, or, you know, maybe this, this system of steering all of the repairs to our authorized service providers is actually like a more efficient way of getting devices repaired, or it leads to increased quality or security or something along those lines, then perhaps a court is going to allow those justifications. I think a lot of those arguments are, are, are pretty problematic and we can, I think, cite some, some solid examples that it's, it's simply not true that the repairs are better in any objective sense or more secure in any objective sense. Um, but that's the kind of uphill battle that, that, um, that we've been looking at in antitrust law in uh, in this space, I think there are signs that that is you know starting to change. The the FTC's nixing the fix report talked a lot about the competitive downsides of these repair restrictions, and so I think there's there's a there's kind of a reconceptualization on the part of the FTC about the way we ought to be looking at repair restrictions through the kind of competition and, and antitrust lens, and I, I think that's really encouraging. Um, you know, we're starting to see litigation, you know, going on. John Deere is in the, the middle of a couple of, you know, uh, antitrust uh, cases right now that I think are you know, notable and interesting as, a, as an opportunity for private parties to try to push back uh, on, on this trend. So I think there's, there's room for things to evolve and develop in a positive direction. But, you know, antitrust is, has been a, a, a tool that's kind of gone unused for too long in this space. Uh, you you brought up uh, the John Deere antitrust lawsuits. Um, there, there's been a kind of string of news in in recent uh, months that that for supporters of right to repair seem encouraging. Um, the Deere lawsuits are kind of the latest. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on those. These are uh, two suits. One filed by a farm in uh, filed in Chicago, but the farm I think was in North Dakota, and then a second suit that was filed by a farmer I believe in Alabama. Um, both uh, against John Deere, both uh, alleging that it is running an illegal uh, monopoly in sales and in service. Um, thoughts? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, when we talked about behaviors that on their face look like they violate antitrust law, John Deere uh, provides some good examples, right? So, you know, one thing that we worry about in the antitrust space is this idea of tying. So if you have you know, considerable market power when it comes to one particular product or service, and you use that as leverage to gain control over another market for a product or service, right? We look at that pretty skeptically as a matter mm -hmm. of antitrust mm -hmm. law, right? And so part of the, the allegations 
in these cases is you know that that John Deere uh, is uh, using its power in the in the market uh, for uh, its uh, farm equipment, right? Uh, to leverage that as a way of gaining control over the market for repair services. Yep. Um, and they do that right through this sort of software tie that says, mm-hmm. look, we'll sell you the tractor uh, once you've sold it or once we've sold it to you, however, right? Um, the only place that you can get some repairs done is through us, right? If you buy our parts and you install them correctly, they're not going to work until we send somebody out to your farm and, you know, connect our our laptops with, you know, these, these payload files and then, um, you know, magically bless everything so that it will operate. Um, that looks like, right, an effort to tie products to repair services, right, in a way that's arguably unlawful. And part of what I think is the important backstory that, you know, is at least news to me when I read that first complaint was the um, really intense degree of concentration that's gone on in the John Deere dealership space, right? Where they've really forced out a lot of independent dealers. And so that market is much more concentrated than it used to be. Farmers have fewer choices about where to buy their tractors, about where to get their tractors serviced. Right. Um, all of which I think lends a, a lot of power to to the arguments that they're um, this that they're is technically within the authorized repair community uh, of deer, the the folks who have um, franchises for dealerships to sell and and service equipment, and and even there, yeah, it, it uh, by one account seems like there was a very concerted effort to thin that population. So that farmers, in essence, now are saying, I can take my uh, equipment to the dealer 10 miles from here, 50 miles from here, 200 miles from here. They're all owned by the same company because Deere has very, you know, gone through this process of concentrating ownerships of dealerships among very large uh, uh, owners. Um, yeah. How, how does that how would that impact how the courts might look at, at that um, charge of antitrust? Yeah, so I mean, I th- I think it goes to you know the question of of you know deer and their dealerships kind of um, concentration of of market power when it comes to the sale of those tractors. If there are fewer places to buy the tractors and there are fewer places to get authorized service, that all gives deer kind of more control over maintaining this tie between the tractor and the service uh, that's, that's being rendered. Now, one thing that I think they're, they're likely to point out here is that, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, last few years, I suppose they have promised and are making minor steps towards making good on the promise to make some of this software available directly to farmers. They promised that years ago and eventually um, it, it seems like they're starting to roll out uh, some limited access to this kind of software tools that farmers might need, um, at least for diagnostic purposes. I'm not sure if it's going to allow them to actually initialize Authentic replacement parts. parts. Yeah. yeah, right, right. But that's really expensive, right? I mean, the, 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 the complaint talks about the, the prices that are being charged for access to this software. Um, and as I recall, it's something like you know eighty five hundred dollars a year um, for a license to this software. And so you know that that 
that doesn't um, alleviate the concern here, right? If a company says, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll sell you parts or we'll, we'll make software available to you, but at like an astronomical price, that, that doesn't really solve the, um, the problem here. And so I, I think that's, that's going to be a point of contention. So we've seen some other uh, good news, uh, notably in Massachusetts in November 2020, the voters expanded that state's auto right to repair law. That's the reason that if you have a car anywhere in the United States, you can still take it to an independent car dealership. Um, And obviously, we've seen some moves by Apple and Microsoft um, in recent months to step back a little bit from their you know, kind of hardline stance on repair, uh, particularly Microsoft, and and uh, in some ways even embrace this notion of uh, owner repair and uh, making more fixable devices. What what are your thoughts? Is this a um, is it, is there a sea change going on here uh, with repair? Are these kind of um, you know um, you know, more cynical kind of uh, strategic step back so that we sort of live to fight another day type moves on the part of OEMs or, or, or how do you, how do you read all of this? Yeah, this is, I think, you know, this is one of those examples, right, where things happen very slowly and then all at once. Um, And, you know, the, the people that have been involved for years in this fight, you know, they've been making, um, slow and consistent and in some cases like maybe from the outside almost imperceptible progress and then you know a lot of pieces fell into place uh all at once and i think you know companies are are um smart and sophisticated and recognize the environment that they are operating within has changed right so we have a a president who on multiple occasions now has very directly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, talking to cabinet meetings, talking at public events, issuing executive orders that of course, like, you know, the president's not writing them himself, but you know, they speak for the administration and he has been pretty clear in his support uh, on this issue. We have new leadership uh, at the FTC, right? Um, and, Khan, yeah. you know, even before even before Lena Khan came in as chair of the FTC, you know, we had the, the Nixing the Fix report, um, which took a position that was quite clearly, um, you know, closely aligned with what repair advocates have been arguing for for years. And so, you know, if you're at Microsoft or you're at Apple or maybe even if you're at John Deere, you see that and think, well, we need to adjust our strategy <laughs> Uh, because if we don't, we are going to be the focus of regulatory enforcement, of private antitrust suits like Deere is facing now, of criticism from the president in one way or another, uh, or you know, a state is going to pass one of these bills, or multiple states are going to pass one of these bills, and you know, maybe rather than fighting it, kicking and screaming we try to negotiate we try to figure out okay how do we how do we come up with a bill that we can live with uh how do we adjust our business strategies in a way that um that will align with this new reality and so i think that's part of what you've seen from apple um you know i think um that those developments are really positive they don't mean the fight is over they don't mean the the war is won here uh this is 
an ongoing debate, right? An ongoing sort of policy struggle um, that, you know, we're going to continue to see play out for years and years and years. You know, companies are making concessions, um, but they're not making universal concessions by any means, right? Apple's gotten a lot of good press and a lot of good uh, coverage for, um, you know, its decision to start selling I think three parts on two iPhone models and good for them. Right. I'm, I'm very happy they did it, but that's not the whole New, newer iPhone here, models right? too, not the old ones that need, need repairing. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't take that as like, Oh yeah, this fight is over or yeah. Right to repair used to be a thing we had to worry about. And, and now, you know, we live in, in a sort of utopia, not by a long shot, right? This is, um, you know, this is encouraging. And I think it is, you know, it's really useful to build momentum, um, you know, to take these arguments down kind of one at a time as we see them. Um, and that helps moving forward. But, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of fights left to go uh, in this space. I mean, you know, we're seeing that even in, in Massachusetts, right? So they, they passed the update uh, to, um, to the automotive uh, right to repair bill. And you know, that's going to get fought out in court and that, that very well might happen uh, it, it, with the, you know, the general uh, right to repair legislation uh, that, that I hope we'll see passed this year. Do you see that case as one that could go as high as the Supreme Court or do you feel like the courts are, there? there isn't that much legal ambiguity about this? It just hasn't really made it, it hasn't really been brought to court. So I, I think it's really hard to say until we see kind of what the initial decision looks like. Um, any any the, the odds of any particular case making its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, are, are abysmally low. My hope is that we don't need to go that far to resolve this issue. Um, but it, it will, I think, you know, send a signal about how likely these fights might be in, you know, courts in, in response to other state bills around the country in the event that they get passed. Final question. Um, you know, it's something like 27 states proposed right to repair legislation last year. I think we're going to see at least that many bring it forward this year. Um, if you were sitting down with a legislator um, considering one of these laws who had concerns about some of the arguments they're hearing about intellectual property rights and, and uh, you know, you have a right to repair, but not to modify and all the kind of, you know, catchphrases that the industry lobbyists use. Um, what would your uh, scholarly legal advice be to them as to how to look at these laws, uh, asking for access to schematics and diagnostic software and, and um, that type of information? So I think the first and most important thing to communicate to, you know, to any policymaker that is thinking about this issue um, is to like try to relate to them first as a matter of personal experience, right? Everybody has some experience with repair or the frustrations uh, that come along with attempted repair in this environment that we live in right now. And I think you got to win people over on the kind of gut instinct level, on the kind of personal narrative level, 
before you want to turn to kind of the ins and out in the ins and outs of you know trade secret law or you know uh, circumvention under the copyright act or whatever it might be um and then I think once you've got somebody who intuitively understands this issue, understands why it's important, understands how it affects you know, their constituents, um, then I think it's a lot easier to kind of dismantle a lot of these arguments that, that get raised in, um, in this space. Um, you know, on the intellectual property angle, um, I think it's really important, again, like, you know, I guess, you know, in part, this is, this is, you know, a function of me spending a lot of time, you know, teaching and, and writing, but narrative to me is so important to persuasion, right? And the narrative that, that I focus on is this idea that, you know, for literally hundreds of years in this country, intellectual property law has been limited by this notion of exhaustion or the first sale doctrine, which means once you buy something, right, once you own a book or a record or a car or a phone, and it is your personal property, right, um, intellectual property rights don't limit your ability to make all sorts of uses and repair is very clearly within um, that sort of sphere of, of personal autonomy. Um, and so I think trying to, to get people to understand this in those terms is really the key to kind of, um, you know, helping them navigate kind of the complexities of, of the legal arguments. It's got to start with, with kind of a, um, you know, a, a true and relatable story and, and one that I think appeals to people on a kind of intuitive level. Aaron, the book is Right to Repair. Where can our listeners get it? Um, hopefully all the places that, that, that you get books. Uh, so Cambridge University Press uh, has it for sale on their website. If you're an Amazon shopper, you can get it there. Uh, your local bookstore, if they don't have it in stock, I'm sure can order it. Um, and, um, you know, I, I really hope that this book makes its way out into the hands of people um, who care about this issue, but don't really see themselves as kind of experts on, on the legal questions. I, I wrote it to be um, accessible. Uh, and, you know, you don't need to be a lawyer or uh, have a law degree to, to understand the, the arguments that I'm making. You don't, having read it, I, I, can, I can assure you that's true. It's a great introduction for folks who uh, want to understand this issue in more depth, um, but uh, very, very readable and accessible. So first of all, thank you for writing it because I think it's really important and very timely. And second, you know, thanks for coming on our podcast and talking about it. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Aaron Prisnowski of Case Law School, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us on What the Fix. Thanks. Thank you for listening to What the Fix. Give us a shout on your podcasting platform of choice with a question and a five-star review, and we'll be sure to try and answer it on a future episode. And make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. The links will be in the show notes. And we also will be having premium offerings that Paul can tell you about. 
Yeah, so we're going to be coming out with more podcasts. Like I've said, we got interviews with other luminaries. Uh, Aaron was the first. We got others in the uh, in the hopper, and um, we're going to be kind of offering some really interesting looks behind the scenes um, and extended interviews with um, some of our guests as part of premium offerings for the uh, Fight to Repair Substack. So we're going to be offering a monthly subscription of $6 a month, a yearly subscription for $60, and a uh, kind of platinum level, reparista level subscription for $150 that also gets you a What The Fix t-shirt. So um, if you're interested, stay tuned. We'll be have, announcing those premium offerings on our Substack shortly, and um, you can sign up. And otherwise, stay tuned, and we will be coming back in a couple weeks with the next episode of What The Fix, more Right to Repair news, another interview, and um, we're really excited to have you back. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Mm-hmm.